Hello everyone and welcome to The Other Web. Our guest today is Dr. Rick Cromie. He is a historian, educator, pastor, author, and speaker. We reached out to Dr. Cromie to discuss his thoughts on the unique interplay between information and history. Rick, welcome to the show. Good to see you, Alex, or hear you. <laughs> Good to see you as well. All right, so I guess my first question is very simple. What is a cultural historian? Cultural historian. Well, my doctorate that I did a few years ago now uh, is in uh, cultural narratives. Uh, it was the science of semiotics, which is reading cultural signs. I like to say I'm a, I'm a weather forecaster for culture. Uh, my specialty is technology, so I uh, tend to take a look back at the past to understand and to see the trendings, and then I can make uh, some prognostications about the future. Um, you know, and we can get into some of those as we as we work through the hour here. But that's what I do. I'm a cultural historian. I I look at narratives. Narratives are huge today, uh, especially those uh, those grand narratives that kind of guide us and um, and refocus. Sometimes create movement in our culture. I find those interesting, uh, especially those that uh, uh, really uh, are uh, built from emotion more than historical facts. We see a lot of that as well. But um, anyway, and it seems like a lot of them are changing these days, like just in the 15 or so years that I've lived in the U.S., seems like the grand narrative has shifted almost entirely. We've had a major shift since 2000 in the grand narratives, but really since 2020, we've had uh, the largest shift at all. We've done more cultural uh, shifting and, and the narratives have changed more since 2020 in a number of different ways uh, that it's really... Um, it's really created a, a moment where we've, uh, you know, for a guy like myself who's interested in it, just uh, I'm shocked by how quickly those narratives have changed us and charged us as well. So for can good we or- try to define what those are? What big shifts do you see if you could sort of categorize them? Well, you know, I, again, as I look at particular moments, uh, COVID was a big moment. You know, it, it's interesting to me that uh, before COVID, if you wore a mask, you were considered the sick person. Today, after COVID, if you wear a mask, you're part of the well. You know, you're trying to prevent yourself from uh, getting sick. Uh, that's an interesting shift in narrative there as far as how we look at a disease. You know, before COVID, we used to look at these diseases. We would treat something like COVID kind of like the flu. You know, even the Spanish flu of the early uh, 1900s, you know, the, the idea of wearing a mask was only in the most infected places. Nobody else wore masks. They were in a, in a situation where they could catch it. So the narratives have changed drastically. You know, even you know racial narratives in particular are another one that have changed greatly in the last few years. The George Floyd incident there in Minneapolis uh, created a, a great change in, in shifting uh, there as far as how we look at things. The transgender uh, movement right now that's going on in America has, uh, is shifting a lot of us, a lot of change there as well as far as how we view gender, sexuality, as such. So, you know, th- those are interesting to me, and I uh, enjoy uh, just trying to understand how and why and what it means in the greater scheme of things. So if we try to focus on technology, which is your specialty, it seems like there's a lot of big narratives or cultural shifts happening there as well. Now, with yeah. AI potentially displacing humans as an essential element of some processes, where do you see this going? <laughs> Well, I, I've been predicting AI. For, in fact, my book, Gentech, I talked, my whole last chapter is about 
what I call the hair technologies of the 2020s, the uh, robotics generation born since 2010. They're coming of age right now. Age, between the ages of 10 and 25, a generation comes of age between their 10th and 25th birthday. So, you know, the robo generation born since 2010 is now coming of age at this point. They're just teenagers and such, but they're young teens, but they're coming of age. And the hair technologies are holographic, artificial intelligence, and robotics. It's, a, it's an acronym for those three technologies. And uh, I've, been, I've been saying, and really in my book, I make a, a strong argument that since 1900, uh, we've had more technological change than in the entire history of the world. But if you look at uh, how we've changed since the year 2000, since 2000, there was actually more technological change and shifting than in the previous 100 years. You know, and there were a lot of things that we did. We put a man on the moon. We manned the fly, air flight, radio, television, a lot of, a lot of things happened in the 20th century. But what's happening now is really transform, transformative in many ways. The internet, cyber communications, and such that are changing and shifting us even more. I wholly expect uh, and have predicted that in this decade alone, with those hair technologies, holographic, artificial intelligence, and robotics, that by 2030, we will wake up and go, what in the world just happened? And if you're older than 50 years of age right now, it's going to be quite transformative. You're going to be the old fuddy-duddy here in 10 years where you're going to going to go, well, wait a minute, I, I don't get it. Much the same way that the, the older generation right now is struggling with some of this newer technology, especially the AI. But you got to look at our kids. Our kids are growing up and it's a natural part. It's like they're fish in water. Those born since 2020, I call them the iTech generation, not the Gen Zers. The iTech generation was cut their teeth on the iTechs of iTunes, iPods, iPads, iPhones, you know, those iTechs. And so they're a completely different generation. And they're the ones that are growing into this. Uh, the millennials are a good transitional generation. The younger ones in particular have, have experienced a lot of that as well. Anyone born since 1990 have really grown up in this new culture, you know, social media being what it is. So Alex, it's a brand new world and we're just trying to survive it. Oh, we're a part of it. So I want to come back to the artificial intelligence and robotics part of this discussion in a second. But one of the things that really interests me and kind of explains what I do for a living is what information people consume and how they process it. And I see this difference between generations that you're describing in that essentially my parents are unable to read the news anymore. They have no idea what's going on. They have no way to figure out whom to believe. Right? It seems like everything that has been created in the past 20 years is anathema to them because they didn't grow up in this world. They grew up in the Soviet Union where you had the official propaganda that is wrong and you yeah. had Voice of America that is right, but you can only hear it on the radio at 4 a.m. while locking yourself in the bathroom so none of your neighbors know. Right, <laughs> That was the world they grew up in. Yeah. I assume people grew up in the West and maybe the inverse of that world where the official line was okay and every conspiracy theorist was a nut job. But either way, it was one of those two. There's the guys who lie and the guys who tell the truth. Right now we're in this multipolar world. Do you think the younger generations are better at handling it or are they just as bad and, but they just know to ignore it? 
that's the question of the hour, really. When you th- we could we could dive into this one all day long. What's interesting, and I was trained as a journalist. Uh, that's really where I started uh, a lot of my. I'm a writer as well, and I started my early career was in journalism and and writing. And you know, I had editors out there that would uh, you know pound it into our heads that we don't print anything unless we can have three sources on the record. You know. Now today we print things with unknown sources or or uh, unconfirmed sources or or unstated sources or people that don't want to go on the record. That's part of our problem with misinformation. A lot of the things that we see that we argue about a lot in our culture today are really these uh, echo chambers uh, that we get ourselves into. That you know we listen only to the news that makes us uh, happy or we feel is the right side of the of the coin, you know, for those of us who are, and and I think there are more of us than we think out there. There are more in the middle of things that like to listen to both sides, but I got to admit, even I have my preferred news sources, uh, the ones that I've come to trust and I believe are more truthful than others. It's just that we find those sources and if we're not careful, we become just a, a, again, an echo of it. But our kids are getting, their sources for news are not the traditional legacy news as we often us older ones tend to uh, gravitate towards, they get their news from comics today. They get their news from uh, comedy. Uh, they get their news from the movies. Uh, really, we get a lot of our truth from the movies, too. I mean, I'm a historian for uh, American Cruise Lines, and I, I work the uh, Columbia River and the Snake River up in the Pacific Northwest, and I deal with Lewis and Clark and Oregon Trail history in particular. And I, I find it very interesting how uh, certain movies uh, – uh, get put out there and people say, have you seen this movie or you've seen this TV show? And, uh, you know, things like, well, Yellowstone, for example, is a very popular one today and uh, and such. And, you know, as a Montana and grow, growing up in Montana, I can safely tell you the Dutton family is nothing like a native Montanan. They look a lot like somebody else that we won't talk about. But uh, it's just, it's irritating on one side, but on the other, it's uh, also enlightening to me as I try to try to navigate and understand uh, what what is it, why is it happening, and how do these narratives become so entrenched? Um, they, have to, they have to get rooted. Um, you, you take anything. Take January 6th, for example. Uh, January 6th, the, the great insurrection day, according to uh, who you listen to and, and such. You know, that, that particular day is, uh, is a narrative. Which narrative do you believe? Uh, was it a great insurrection? Was it a great attack upon the capital, you know, or was it just a, a, a protest that got out of hand? Or was it a protest that had agitators in, in the crowd that got out of hand and created a mess for those who were there to peacefully protest? Uh, what they felt was, uh, was a, a, an election that they thought was, was a bit fraudulent, you know, which I, I, I think is very interesting too, just on that particular point, because four years earlier, Hillary Clinton, she lost uh, to Donald Trump. And on that particular point, she went around the, the entire you know, United States and, and globe, really, for the next four years, pushing a book. She wrote how, how it happened, all it happened. And one of the she told she basically told people it was stolen. Her election was stolen from her. Those are the things where narratives take place. Her narrative was OK. It was acceptable. And because there, there were there, there was people in the press that pushed it out there saying that you know Hillary got a bad deal, 
Hillary, Hillary should have won that one. And, you know, we can dissect all the reasons. There's several reasons why she should have won. Well, Donald Trump, because he was also not liked well by the, the mainstream press and, and many other press outlets, he, he kind of grouses the same way that, that Hillary did. And he gets, you know, scandalized for it and, and, and such. So these narratives, you know, depending on who you listen to, and I, I think you have to have a very open mind today. And the problem with a lot of our younger people and younger generations that I see is they're not trained to critically think. Uh, much of our education system today has become more of an indoctrination zone. Uh, it's really more concerned with, with making sure you have a, a certain belief, a certain idea of, of things. But it's not really teaching us how to critically think. Uh, critical thinkers have the ability to, to, to think uh, beyond the boxes, beyond the labels, beyond the narratives, and to listen and to do it with respect. You know, I, I suspect that you have people listening to you right now, listening to us, who already are disagreeing with me. And I understand that. I, I okay, you know, I, I don't know what I've said that we've disagreed on yet, but if you have a disagreement with me, I will respect, gently respect your right to disagree and even listen to you what your disagreement might be. Uh, you know, but today, uh, disagreement often gets translated into I hate you or you hate me because I, we disagree. And again, those are, are interesting narratives that, that really divide us. The narratives that divide us are often rooted to the idea of fear or hate. I don't know if you thought about that, Alex, but uh, these, these narratives out there tend to go that route. Yeah, so I agree that there are competing narratives, right? Mm -hmm. um, I am curious whether there's any evidence that today's education system produces people who are less likely to think critically than, let's say, 30 years ago. My, at least anecdotal evidence, shows that most people were never critical thinkers. Either now or 30 years ago or 300 years ago, most people would pick either the culture or the, cult the counterculture, yeah. And they would stay in one of those two lanes for most of their lives, right? And I, I think even if you go back to ancient Greek times, there were people writing about how being able to hold a thought and its opposite in your mind at the same time is sort of evidence of a trained mind, right? Sort of implying that most people aren't like that and they right, are right, right, not right. able to do that thing. So do you think that that is what separates the younger generation from the older? Or maybe it's actually the inverse, that the younger generation sort of gave up on everything and they don't hold the thought or it's inverse, they just ignore the entire thinking process. I, yeah, when I think of critical thinking, I, I think of the ability to go beyond the superficial. And I think that's probably what I'm more, more looking at when I say that we're not critical. You're right, throughout history, you can bring up examples. I, I think the hoi polloi in general, the, the common people in general, the uneducated or even the barely educated or the somewhat educated, uh, you could make a strong argument. We're not highly critical thinkers. Uh, that's why they relied on certain sources for their truth, for what they knew, whether it would be the, the church or the school or a, another type of institution of learning or media, as we've learned had in the last uh, 150 years. With that, with that said, though, today what's happened is we've got social media in particular as and the micromedia of social media. When you think about Twitter, when you think about Snapchat, when you think about even YouTube, the average YouTube video is three or four minutes long. 
that's not that's not a lot of time to be able to go fairly deep into a particular subject. Uh, it's it's very superficial. And when you think about comedians out there handling our news, uh, you know, which is which was different. You know, Johnny Carson when he did a on the news, uh, you know, he he was it was part of a way just to kind of get you to get away from the news, to have some fun, to laugh at it. And he was fairly balanced. He he took on all sides of you know of of the news. But uh, today we have political pundits, uh, comedians who are clearly. Um, you know, pushing a particular narrative and pushing a particular uh, political view. And that's different. And it's very superficial. And so from from what I'm seeing in, in public education today, and I am an educator, I've, I've been, I'm closely involved in education. I'll be, uh, I speak in a lot of schools every year. So I get to talk to these kids and I get to work with these teachers. And to their credit, they're, a lot of them are doing everything they can to teach these kids to think, to teach them to get beyond. But the curriculum itself is often, you know, biased, or the curriculum itself is often superficial, or they have too many things they have to do. They got too many other, you know, things they have to teach that they can't get down to it. You know, history education in particular, I'm very concerned about history education. Immigrants to America have to pass a citizenship test. They have to pass a history test. Only 13% of our eighth graders in America could pass that same test. That's a problem. And when, our, when we start to lose our history, our understanding, our ability to understand history, uh, and instead we politicize history to a particular narrative, historical narrative, that's where I get concerned because, you know, there are still facts out there, folks. There are still facts. And just because the History Channel or, you know, some some big channel out there or, or a medium or a movie pushes a particular story and it looks real and they even put little facts in there to make you think it's real. As one television producer said, we want to be authentic. And yet his show that he produces is one of the most inauthentic uh, shows out there uh, when it comes to actual facts and truth. You know, we've got a problem. Alex, and and that's what I'm speaking more to is the superficiality, often um, driven by the social media, you know, and such. Yeah, that's an interesting aspect in itself because you're right, videos are getting shorter and shorter, but then podcasts are getting longer and longer. So I'm interested about the reaction and the counter reaction. Right, yeah. you, you have 90 second or 30 second sometimes TikTok videos. Yeah, and then you have Lex Friedman speaking to Balaji Srinivasan, and that's seven hours 36 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> Well, the superficial types have already tuned us out, so uh, we lost them in the first three minutes. They're gone. But uh, for those still listening, I, I think uh, I want to commend you for continuing to listen. I, obviously, you cannot dive in to a subject deeply without getting past three minutes, getting past 30 seconds, getting past you know 27 characters or whatever you're allowed now on Twitter to have. You know. Didn't they remove the limitation? It was 280, but... <laughs> Maybe, maybe, maybe they did. It's, you know, I'm not much for Twitter, so yeah. me neither. And it seems like it's drifting in a slightly odd direction. I'm generally a big fan of the guy who took over it, right? But yeah. what we're seeing there kind of looks like Twitch reverting back to being just in TV. Yeah, right? a platform where a lot of people are speaking their mind just becomes watching one guy and what he did today. Yeah, it's an interesting devolution in some sense. Well, I, I always say beware of one hand clapping in any of these things. If you get your news, doesn't matter whether it's news, your tweets, your YouTube videos, or whatever, just beware of one hand clapping 
Uh, we need both hands. We need both sides to a story to get a really good understanding of it. All right. Since you're a historian, I want to try to draw probably a flawed parallel, and you'll probably correct me when I do it, between okay. the current information revolution and the 15th century. It seemed like back then we democratized publishing through the printing press. People started publishing a lot more books than existed before that. And before long, you got witch hunts and inquisitions and more than 50 different religious wars all over Europe because people wrote stupid books and other people believed them because they weren't trained to think critically about books. Right? Yeah. They assumed that books were true just because they were written. So it feels like we're in kind of a similar period where there is a lot more stuff published. Most of it is false, but we haven't yet learned how to filter through it. Is there a parallel we can draw and are there lessons we can learn? For example, what actually helped us get to the Enlightenment after 200 years of reading nonsense? Yeah, I think that's a great parallel. You know, the, the emergence of the printing press and the, the book or the print publication uh, does parallel a lot what we, we're seeing today in a cyber uh, world. The Protestant Reformation, I like to say, gave us two great gifts. It gave us, first of all, the gift of literacy, and then secondly, the gift of division. Uh, because when you look at the Protestant Reformation, it produced a denominationalism. It produced division, uh, and because everybody tended to get around their particular truth, you know, whether it was Presbyterian or uh, Methodist or you know Catholic or whatever it might be, everybody got around their own truth, and and that truth became their their box that they were in. Uh, of course, the internet and uh, postmodern technologies have totally exploded those boxes. We don't have those boxes anymore. And it's one of the reasons why those mainline, those big boxes, especially in the religious culture, are, are disappearing. But they're also disappearing in wider culture as well. Uh, anything that's big box is, is on a short leash here if they don't reinvent and uh, reimagine how they do do their business or, or how we edu educate. And I think, that, again, that's why education is, for me, a very important area because we're, ch we're changing. Uh, the world is transforming exponentially quickly. So when you get into, um, you know, when you think about all those books that were being printed, you know, I I'll give a good example. As a professor, I often get criticized because I actually recommend you use Wikipedia uh, as a source. Uh, and I have professors out there who go, are you nuts? And I say, of course I'm nuts because I'm thinking outside the box. I'm thinking about where do we get information? But what I like about Wikipedia is it's a people's encyclopedia. When you go to Wikipedia and you're reading down a story, if there's anything in that story that's got some issues, you know, maybe it's got some facts that are not exactly provable or whatever it might be, it gets flagged. And I like those type of articles because then I know that I've got an issue. When World Book Encyclopedia and all these other great books were printed in the in the print culture, the Gutenberg pro, uh, culture, you know, they didn't come with flags. They didn't tell you those type of things. They just printed it as if it was true. Now we live in a culture where at least we get flags. You know, that that's what causes critical thinking. You, when you look at something, you go, oh, there's a flag on this. Maybe I need to be careful about how I think about it. Maybe I need to be careful what I promote as truth. I, I deal a lot with the Native Americans uh, in my Lewis and Clark uh, stories and studies and in the Pacific Northwest. And 
we have some great stories that that come down to the tribes here. The problem is, is those are our oral traditions. And as historians, how how much do we trust an oral tradition? What I love about the Lewis and Clark story, it's one of the reasons I'm such a fan of it and try to promote and get it out there again, is the Lewis and Clark exploration of 1805 or 1804 to 1806 was documented every single day. And you had multiple eyes on the story. There were multiple people looking at it uh, from different angles. And it was written in, in you know, pretty much near real time. Sometimes they had to go back and, and fix their notes and correct their, uh, correct their journals and, and update them, as they would say. But in general, it's a fairly right there in the, in the space moment uh, documentary of what, what happened. And you've got multiple eyes on it, so you do have contradictions between maybe one of the one of the uh, sergeants saying that it was thirteen men when one of the captains saying no, it was it was you know sixteen men. Okay, you can take those contradictions. The problem that you have with the natives is they have oral traditions, and you have to trust those oral traditions. And uh, depending on what that oral tradition is, I mean, if you got one single stream, you know, you gotta go. I don't know if I can fully land on that. There's there's absolutely no independent evidence to suggest that. And it's really difficult when you got evidence that suggests opposite. Um, that's the one thing, again, the the Western or the white European brought, at least to the, the Western world out here, is that we brought the ability to communicate and to write and to read. And so, you know, yes, the victor gets to write the, uh, write the spoils and write the history, but again, a lot of that history is written, you know, we, we listen to others' histories, but we also have to be cautious with it because oral traditions in particular can change over the, over the decades as they're communicated down. They're not infallible is what I'm trying to say. And so when you're dealing with oral tradition, it's, it's a different type of thing. But that's what I like about the book. That was, what the, that was the gift of the printing press, Alex, was it allowed us to write down uh, history. It allowed us to write down ideas. It allowed us to write down, uh, you know, math and all these other great types of, of sciences to confirm, to produ- produce theories and theses and, and allow us to confirm those. So I guess the question is, obviously it was a gift, but as you talked about, it gave us division and those divisions were not blood free, right? There was a cost to them. Yeah. Um, I don't think we can survive 52 religious wars in Europe and the United States right now because we have nukes. So the question is, is there something we can learn about the exit from that period? (laughs) Is there some way where we can avoid the bloodshed and skip straight to the Enlightenment this time? Yeah, yeah. I I don't know. I... The, the the problem is as uh, as a cultural historian again I've I've noticed that there's been certain especially American um, history uh, if you look over the last 50 60 70 years nearly every decade we've had a loss of something we've had we've had a loss of of you know innocence for example in the 1950s there was a general you know just a loss of of, of innocence there was a, a loss of authority in the 1960s you could argue. You know, in the 1990s, for example, I think we had a loss, general loss of, of respect. Uh, people often say today we're such a disrespectful culture. And a lot of that, the genesis for that was in the music and the movies and uh, even the cultural. Uh, when you look at Gen X, we were the grunge culture, you know, uh, and the clothes that we wore, we took our baseball cap and we turned it on backwards or, or we wore our, 
our our jeans down to our knees and or we 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 left our shirts untucked i mean all those were viewed as signs of disrespect to older generations and and yet we still did it and now it's become common you know uh, that disrespect has now become part of who we are but there was a loss of respect in the 1990s i think what we've lost in the last 10 years people say what have we lost most recently i think we've lost truth I don't think we know today what really is true anymore. A lot of that driven, of course, by not just uh, multiple media out there that's pushing narratives or uh, social agendas, but also when you think about uh, CGI, computer-generated images out there. I mean, we can create an artificial intelligence now coming on board. Literally, we can create uh, on a computer, someone could take my image and have me talking and it would look just like me. It would sound just like me, except it's not me. They can have me saying words that I never said. Right. That, is, is that a loss of truth or does that just mean that videos are no longer sufficient evidence and we right. need to go back to eyewitness accounts like we used to? Right. So what that means is in the future, I've always said that the you know, you know, we used to believe that when I'll, I'll believe it when I see it. I mean, that was a common popular vernacular or, or idea. I'll believe it when I see it. Now it's really, I'll believe it when I can experience it personally. I have to personally know you. Like we're having a personal experience right now. You and I are talking, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a hologram here. I'm not artificially intelligent, although many of your audiences might, uh, in your audience might disagree with that. We're having a conversation and I'm real and you're real, but there's going to come a day where you can have a robot take the place of Alex, a robot that can learn. You know, we already have that in Japan. There are robots in Japan. There are reporters, uh, but they're also investigative reporters and they can sit down and through just short common questions start to learn from you. That's the difference between artificially intelligent robots and just old, old style robots. We had smart robots before, but now the smart robots can learn and they're learning as quickly as, as we're giving them information and they can take that learning and then apply it. All right. So going back to AI and robots, since mm -hmm. we kind of shelved that topic 20 minutes ago, um, I guess it's time to get back to it. How does that evolve in the next decade or so? What is it that we're going to wake up in 2030 and realize that has just changed in the world? Yeah. Well, there's definitely some who, um, who like to uh, go deeper into the future with the artificial intelligence and with the robots, and I think we'll experience in our lifetimes. Now, it's possible that my kids and grandkids will, uh, will experience it, but I'm not sure, sure our... The, the generations right now, especially my generation, is going to experience too much of this. But um, we are seeing the rise of smart robots. And automation is going to be the biggest thing that's going to impact the next five to, you know, seven years. Uh, by 2030, a lot of our spaces will be fully automated. Uh, we're seeing it right now. This is this is part of my work. I, I'm constantly observing and listening and watching for uh, testing the theories that I'm that I'm pushing out there, I've been talking about holographic, artificially intelligent, and robots as being being the the guiding uh, technologies of the 2020s. Uh, just last year, when we had the Olympics there in China, uh, the athletes all went over to the athlete village uh, for their meals, and uh, 
China had that locked down because of COVID, had locked down so much, but they had replaced it all with robots. When you went in there as an athlete, you, you ordered your meal, you sat down, a robot prepared it, and a robot brought it to your table. It was fully automated dining hall. You know, that's where the restaurants will be in probably 10 years. Um, you know, they're struggling right now to find workers. Well, you don't need to find workers when you can automate them. It's more expensive on, on the front end to have an automated restaurant. But obviously, once it gets going, it's fairly economical uh, and it, you don't have to worry about turnover. You don't have to worry about hiring and such like that. So that changes. Even human resources becomes a change. And any job that can be automated is going to be automated, uh, including a lot of teaching jobs. Uh, you think about tour guides, you think about people that they say the same thing every single day. You know, you go to a museum and that person at the museum tours you through that museum. They say the same thing to every crowd that can be fully automated. What's not going to be automated are is creativity. What's not going to be automated, automate, automated is going to be innovation. You know, the ability to, to change and to to, to create on the spot. Those things cannot be automated. Emotions will be hard to automate. Um, I, I think we learned that from Star Trek, didn't we? You know, with, uh, with Data. Data, they even had a, an emotion chip for him, and it still didn't work. He was still dissatisfied that he couldn't feel. So when you look at robots in the future, I'm not totally convinced we're going to have that great moment where the robots totally take over. Um where, where they control, it's possible that they might learn how to reproduce themselves just because of, you know, if, if we can produce them, certainly they might be able to reproduce themselves. But I think that's, uh, that's speculative and going to, uh, further into the future than we need to go. What I can say is that by 2030, uh, you will have robots basically mowing your lawn as well as uh, running your floors and your, and your carpets. You'll have robots that will uh, clean your clothes, you know, you can have robots that will pick up your clothes, take them to the washer, all those things. So it's funny that in a sense, my intuition is, I wouldn't say it's the opposite of yours, but between those two main aspects, robotics and AI, I see much faster progress in AI and much slower progress in robotics. It seems like physical tasks are substantially harder to automate. Even yeah. basic things like opening doors, as long as the doorknob is not always in the exact same position and doesn't always rotate with exactly the same radius, it seems like most robotics companies don't know how to solve this problem economically. Whereas replacing a contract lawyer seems like a trivial task at this point. Yeah. Right? yeah. Or replacing a diagnostician, a doctor, is a trivial task at this point. And so it seems to me like us knowledge workers are actually much easier to if not replace, then at least decimate. You still need software engineers, but do you really need this many? Or can you just keep one-tenth of us and then just make us 10 times more productive with the help of a lot of robot apprentices, right? Right. But at the same time, the guy who comes to my house to fix my plumbing when it's not working, that one's hard to automate because the pipe is always in a slightly different location in every house. And so maybe a human is better suited for this, at least for a while. What do you think? I have, there's not a lot there I can disagree with. Again, I'm always looking backwards to try to look forwards. And that we have to be very careful that we don't have these Kodak moments. You know what a Kodak moment is, Alex? 
Yes. You know, was that I worked in digital cameras for 15 years. There you go. Kodak invented the digital camera. Did you know that? Yep. They actually invented it. And then they shelved it because they didn't feel like they were in digital photography. They thought they were in paper, pushing paper. They were all about the paper. They are all about the print photograph. That's what Kodak did. And then all of a sudden, what happens is the opposite. You know, the, the digital photograph reinvents how we take pictures. And now they're stuck. And uh, they, they invented the, the digital camera and they never used it. And now they're, they're gone. They're defunct. And that's, um, that's something we have to kind of keep in front of us as we uh, think through these things, that we don't, uh, we don't naysay to a certain point that we get ourselves you know, locked into a way of doing things that become on the back end uh, the demise of our organization or our business or whatever it is. But I think you're right. You know, it's, it is, it's hard to be, you know, really hard and fast as far as how quickly this is going to go. I just think it's interesting that when you look at technology in the, let's just say 20th century technology, you know, airplanes came around in the early 1900s. All right. And by 1920, they were already starting to do passenger flights but the tipping point for passenger flights wasn't really till the mid 70s. It took it took better part of the century for it to get to that point. It was 1968, 69 before we had the first big jumbo jet that would carry passengers. Uh, most of the jets were much smaller and they carried a very high class. You spent a lot of money to get on a jet back in the 1950s, uh, even the 40s. You know, it was it was not a cheap experience. But then you look at things like, um, oh, the television. The television was introduced uh, in uh, 1938, 39, at least in America uh, it was. And it kind of stumbled through the 40s. In the 50s, because of news and sports and some of those things like that, it started to pick up some steam. But it wasn't until the mid-1960s. In fact, JFK's assassination was huge as far as... Uh, you know, a lot of people bought television sets after that just so they could get the news from from Walter Cronkite about the JFK assassination. Uh, they were watching it through windows at the local store down there, and they they said, "We just need to buy one of those," and and so they could have in their home. So news shifted, and and then now you think about television. You know, television is on our smartphones. You know, television is is on our iPads. Uh, we can we can stream it anywhere we want. It just it's changed us so much, but it's it's continued to, to shrink as far as the rapidity of of how much it's tipping. Uh, and then you look at like the internet. The internet was what 1969. The internet was technically uh, first founded or or discovered or however you want to put it. But it wasn't until 1994 that we had a an ability to get on the internet. That was Netscape. By the year 2000, it had already tipped. More people were on the internet than not on the internet by the year 2000. And you look at what it's done since. It's just exploded. You know, we, we, don't, even, we don't even think anymore without the, the internet. The internet is part of who we are, you know, as a, as a culture. So, uh, you know, it's, these tipping points have gotten smaller and smaller. So I would anticipate, based upon previous, you know, technology, the faster we go, the more high tech we become, the faster, the more rapid that that tech will emerge. So that's why I'm predicting that by 2030, we're going to primarily be a, a holographic, artificially intelligent, robotic culture uh, where these technologies are all around us and we're very comfortable with them. 
uh, at least the younger people will be very comfortable with them. Us older ones will still be grousing about them, but we always do. All right. So if that is the case, yeah. I'm going to use another kind of less pleasant historic parallel here. Right. When the U.S. mechanized agriculture in the beginning of the 20th century, a lot of people got displaced. They mm. migrated typically north from the agricultural south. And the, the descendants of these people are still essentially not assimilated into society, right? It's still kind of an underclass in every large city in the U.S. Yeah. Um, so even three generations didn't fix that particular displacement, even though typically we think that if we go from 40% of people in society working on agriculture to three, that's a good thing because yeah. we're more efficient now. The current displacement might be larger than that. So what will the societal effects be if the majority of workers get displaced, essentially? Yeah, it's, it's going to be huge. And obviously, we haven't thought that one through. But when you think about our need right now for workers, you know, just about every fast food restaurant I go to is looking for someone to work. So those are, that's the low-hanging fruit, Alex. I think, I think the places right now, they're hungering for workers, and they can automate that workforce those that's a low-hanging fruit here with the technology that we're going to see you know it's it's going to work its way up it's clear that those of us who work as creatives it's going to be much harder to automate what we do you know um, the robots are going to take those more non-creative uh, non-innovative type of jobs and and become the, the workforce but you know at the same time we're still you know this is where college uh, i'm a college professor and uh you know, this is where college becomes an issue. It's one of the reasons why I kind of got out of the fray of it. It's just, you know, we're preparing kids today for jobs that won't exist in five years. You know, we, we by the time you go through halfway through a, a, a basic, let's say you're going to do computers, uh, major in computers in, in college. By the time you get halfway through your sophomore year, the end of your sophomore year, everything you've just learned is now mostly obsolete. You've got to relearn it in a different way. It's the computer, computing, uh, computing is changing so much, you know, that it's it's creating, uh, um, you know, some issues for us as far as how we educate, which I think tends to be more needs to be more experiential, more practical, more practicum in its approach. You know, you learn more on the job than you do, um, you know, in a in a classroom. But yeah, that actually echoes something I've been saying a lot, which is if you can teach it, that's probably not worth learning anymore because yeah. you can teach an AI model and it will be better. And so yeah. we should probably focus a lot more on things that require tinkering to learn as opposed right. to somebody lecturing us to learn. Because yeah. again, if somebody can lecture us, they can lecture the next large language model. Right. So what's the point? Unless you're like me, my lectures on history are, I call it edutrainment. I'm, I'm into... Uh, being somebody, I'm not like your average historian. I tell stories, but I root them to the story using as much as I can factual information, not as much. I use factual information, not as much, but I use factual information to tell these stories. My Lewis and Clark stories are, are popular because I don't do it like the average historian. It, it's not about birthdays and death dates. It's not about what happened on this day or that day. It's about what his, history teachers need to do is learn how to tell a story. And most of them don't know how to tell stories. So the communicators in the future, the, the, the mentors, the teachers, if you will, the future that are going to thrive are going to be those rare ones that can communicate a story. 
that can communicate it in a way with using metaphors, you know, as well. You know, they, they can make uh, analogies come alive. And if you can do that, you're, you're always going to be around. People are going to always want to listen to you. Um, you know, they just may get to listen to you by hologram rather than in person. What's the most hopeful scenario here? And what needs to happen for that scenario to become reality? I think most hopeful is just like anything that comes in, uh, any technology, take, take radio, take television, take even the telephone. I'm at, my goodness, when I was researching my book on the telephone and radio and television, all three of those technologies had detractors. There were people that said about television, Nah, it's never going to take. Nobody's going to want to sit there all night and watch a television set. Nobody's going to want to do that. Even though at that point they were already sitting around listening to someone give them a radio show for three hours each night. Nah, it's not going to take off. Or the telephone. You know, some of the religious types felt there was a demon in there. It had to have something. There had to be something, you know, wrong that, that you could have your, your voice transfer through the airwaves like that. You know, the automobile. You know, the power of the automobile to take us outside of our context. You know, if you grew up, uh, and I actually met some of these people. I used to teach at a little school in eastern Kentucky. I met people in, in my little small town in eastern Kentucky who had never been out of the county. It's such a poor county. They'd never been out of the county. I found that fascinating. So I would take some of them. I'll take you up to Cincinnati a couple hours away, show you a big city. And they were like, oh, my goodness. I've never, for them, it was like going to a totally different world. Uh, to get outside that little box that they grew up in. The automobile changed that. It changed that. And so these technologies, I think, in the end, can be very helpful to us. When you think about artificial intelligence, you know, it can be very helpful to us in, in, in things like surgery, for example. You know, robotics and, and artificial intelligence together, uh, we, we will have robots to be able to do our surgery. We won't have to wait for a, a doctor, a physical doctor, to actually open up uh, availability in his or her schedule, these robots, we could just build more robots to meet the demand. When, when cars, self-driving cars become the norm and you won't, and, and they're so trusted and they're so good. They're so, they're able to manage the road so well that they don't get in accidents anymore. 52,000, 55,000 lives a year, at least here in America will be saved, you know? So now you've got more people you know, you have to figure out what you're going to deal with. But think about the lives. You know, if you've ever had somebody pass away due to an automobile accident, imagine that not happening. Imagine not having to pay for uh, car insurance anymore because cars won't get in wrecks. They'll still get stolen occasionally. Yeah. <laughs> or it gets, yeah. Imagine being able to get into a drone and getting taken to the airport. Your Ubers will be in the air in the future. You know, uh, it's there's so many things that are on a you know, it's almost Jetson-like when you start thinking about it. But when you look at the Jetsons, that was 1963, 1964, it came out as a cartoon. You know, it had things in it that today we just take as commonplace. You know, video, like what we're doing. That was that was imagination back in, in the mid-1960s. Star Trek, the idea of having video, that was a pipe dream. But here we are doing it here in 2023. Yeah, so hopefully we'll do a lot of Really fun things 10 years from now, hopefully more fun than this. <laughs> but no, this has been a lot of fun. So thank you so much for joining me and hopefully we'll get to do it again sometime. All right. Thanks, Alex. All right. Thanks, Rick. This has been another episode of The Other Web. 
Join us next time for more discussions on media, news, and the information ecosystem.